Welcome to the Tibetan blog of Living and Dying podcast, celebrating 20 years of the Tibetan book of Living and Dying. In the second part of a three-part teaching on living and dying today, Sogyal Rinpoche reveals how it is that by taming the mind through the practice of meditation, we finally come to realize what Milarepa calls the deathless, unending nature of mind. In horror of death, I took to the mountains and again and again meditated on the uncertainty of out of death. But then he said, capturing the fortress of the deathless, unending nature of mind, now all fear of death is done and over with. Gradually then, we come to be aware in ourselves of the calm and skylight presence of what Milarepa calls the deathless, unending natural mind. As this new awareness begins to become vivid and almost unbroken, there occurs what the Upanishads call a turning about in the seat of consciousness, a personal, utterly non-conceptual revelation of what we are, why we are here, how we should act, which mount in the end to nothing less than a new life, new birth, almost, you could say, a resurrection. What a beautiful and what a healing mystery it is that from contemplating continually and fearless the truth of change and impermanence, we come slowly to find ourselves face to face in gratitude and joy with the truth of changeless, with the truth of deathless, the unending nature of mind. Is that correct? But now, now, how do we realize that is a meditation? Because meditation has many, many meanings anyway. Like, for example, you see in Time magazine, since after the, 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 the research has been done in America about the effect of meditation, Time magazine said in the, the instruction of meditation said, first find a quiet place, then you close the, your eyes, then say a word, that's it. <laughs> you close and say, mm, ah, or rubbish, whatever you say, you know? Yeah, I don't know, uh, you know, and they think they're very, so I think people have very kind of simplistic idea of meditation. But meditation is many, many deep, as his only says, it helps, it more cultivates the mind, trains the mind, makes mind more turned towards virtue. And also gathers and strengthens the find, find the inner strength, confidence. As you know, it's And also, it to help us to discover the ultimate nature of mind, particularly in the higher teachings like the Mahamudra or the Dzogchen, which are considered to be the higher teachings in the Tibetan tradition, that the meditation is to really uh, to bring about that. So, shall I say a little bit about that? Okay. Shall I? Okay. Um, very simply, because we don't have time. That's always the problem. <laughs> I remember actually many years ago, about 40 years ago, from a very great master called Kalurumpachi. Not very far away from here, at the center, where he was teaching, where I heard him say, these two lines really were very kind of, how do you say, were extremely, how do you say, helpful for me. Because it revealed to me in these two lines what the nature of mind is, and then how to abide by the recognition of that, which is the meditation at the highest level. 
Now in Tibetan, it's very beautiful. It's almost musical. It said, Chu manyuk natang sem machina de. You got that? Chu manyuk natang sem machina de. Chu means water. Manyuk means if you don't stir it. Natang means will be clear. So just as water, if you don't stir it, it will become clear. That's a fact. You understand? Now, just as water, if you don't stir it, it will become clear. In the same manner, the next word is what is interesting. Next word is sem machunade. Sem is mind. Machu is such a beautiful word. Machu means unaltered. Unalter. Mean not altering. That's really being natural, due to the nature. You know, you understand? Same machina. You see, same machina. Because unfortunately, what we do is there's too much, how do you say? Too much changing the mind, too much fabrication, too much manipulation, too much thinking. In fact, uh, I think many of the great kind of authorities on mental health said that. In fact, if you take all the books on mental health and break down to one sentence, is that the root cause of all our mental problems is too much thinking. So there's, there's a famous saying, I don't know from where it is, but it's, it, it, it's a good one. It says, no brain, no pain. <laughs> because as you know, Dalai Lama spoke about human mind, we have this intelligence. But that if it's not educated in a good way, it could be, you know the English saying goes, you're too clever for your own good, isn't it? Own good and turns against you, mind turns against you, then you become paranoid about everything, like a porcupine. It's really, it's really the training of the mind. In fact, Yisrael Dalai Lama often says that he really, that he said, Buddhism is not about prayers, not about rituals. It's about transforming the mind. Of course, prayers, man, all these things are part of it, but the most important is transforming the mind. In fact, there's a, this very great master in a, in a Milarepa's teachers called Marpa. Marpa's teachers called Naropa. Naropa teachers called Telopa. He was the first great Indian saint in the what is called lineage of Mahamudra. He was the first human that mastered that extraordinary lineage. And he told this great pundit, the Naropa, he said, Pu, in his kind of hard advice, he said, Pu nawe matching zimbeching. He said, son, like a spiritual father speaking affectionately to his heart son, in a very, he giving his like life experience, saying that, son, it's not all disappearance that bind us. It's not all these things that bind us, imprison us. It's our clinging. You understand? So abandon grasping. Because if you can conquer the mind, then by conquering the mind, you can also, by transforming the mind, you transform your perception, your experience. In fact, in Tibetan, there's one word called nangwa. Nangwa means perception, nangwa means experience, nangwa means appearance. Which means when you transform your mind, 
Then you can say you transform your experience and your perception, and then even the appearance begin to change. Even the circumstance begin to change. Is that clear? And the conquering the mind. In fact, in all the teaching of the Buddha, the heart essence of the teaching of Buddha, because as you know, the teaching of Buddha is very vast. Just the word of the Buddha alone, volume over 100. That's why I always teach people said that if we get uh, freedom in Tibet and have our own Tibetan hotels, if we try to have Tibetan Buddhist Bibles, it'd be 100 volumes. Oh. <laughs> but yet at the same time, uh, what is wonderful is when Buddha was asked to essentialize his teachings, he essentialized them. He said, That's the Tibetan translation, which when you roughly translate is in the old Burmese and that kind of translation, he said, do no evil, to do good, to subjugate, tame this mind, keep your mind pure. But more modern translation is, commit not a single unwholesome action. But then you might ask, but how could I possibly not commit a single answerable action? Actually, what it really is saying is, as much as possible, try to commit, try not to commit harm to others. Because when you harm others, it harms you. As his Dalai Lama, in his conclusion, he said, he always said, if you want to be selfish, if you really want to think of yourself, he said, well, don't be foolishly selfish, but be wisely selfish. What is being wisely selfish is that if you harm others, it harms you. If you help others, it helps you. So that is to say, if you harm others, it harms you. Therefore, Buddha said, do not harm others. Most important of all, do not keep malice. You see? You understand? Do not keep hatred. In fact, many great Tibetan masters always went to advice to people, to simple people, said, you know, if you cannot help, at least don't harm. And most important, keep your heart pure. Not keep a black heart. Don't keep malice, hatred. And instead, if you can cultivate a good heart, kindness and compassion is wonderful. The next time Buddha said, cultivate the wealth of virtue. Because, you see, if you want to be rid of suffering, then cause of suffering is negative emotions and negative actions which result in suffering. So you must avoid that. That's why Buddha said, try not to commit harmful actions because that's the cause of suffering. Whereas if you want happiness, Buddha said, cultivate the wealth of virtue because positive and wholesome actions are the cause of happiness for ourselves and others. As the great saint Bodhisattva Shantideva said, all the happiness there is in this world comes from thinking of others. All the suffering there is in this world comes from thinking of oneself. Is that clear? But then, as His Holiness was saying also, when you realize on a deeper level that you see, first you do it kind of just even for yourself, like, you know, if you try to be wisely selfish, just for yourself, Okay, what is really truly good for me, but not just be foolishly selfish, but stupidly selfish, but wisely selfish. And then you really, really to see what's good for you or what's not good for you. Then you realize harming others is not good for you. You understand? Helping others is very good for you. You understand? And then you realize slowly what you realize. When you realize harming others is 
not good for you, harmful for you, helping others as help for you. Then when you realize, you see, suddenly you realize that actually our happiness and suffering is connected with happiness and suffering of others. So therefore, we are interconnected. We are interdependent, not independent. When you realize that, then it begins to open our heart. And then we begin to slowly begin to have the altruistic thought of others begins to. Is that clear? Also, Isonu Dalama always says this, this view of interdependence is extremely helpful. It's not just a Buddhist philosophy, it's very practical. Or if you say very simply, what is the basic Buddhist philosophy? Philosophy is when you don't practice the called philosophy. When you practice the called the view. You understand? What is the basic Buddhist philosophy and what is the basic Buddhist conduct? The basic Buddhist philosophy is that everything is interdependent. You understand? Interdependent. Nothing is independent. And the very basic Buddhist conduct or practice is non-harming. That means non-violence, which slowly leads to altruism. Is that clear? Now that, he's only Dalai says, there's a very practical thing. Like suppose you see what happens often with situations. When you get angry or, you know, certain situations, it's very easy to, for us to take some particular case or a person or situation and then you see get really, how do you say, get really, what's the word? Get really kind of worked up. Yeah, chewed up, whatever. And you can use that particular as a target of your anger, you see? Because anger must have a kind of something to project on, to really get the anger going, so to speak. But then that's actually too easy to blame somebody or some situation. Because that's when you don't really examine, when you don't analyze. If you really analyze and look in situation, maybe this particular person, maybe a some contributory cause, but fundamentally when you really look into there are many, many causes and conditions and in which that even you yourself are a little bit implicated. When that happens, when you begin to really realize the interdependence of all these things, then in a sense that object, that previous object of your anger begins to, the object goes away. There's no one to get angry at because it kind of dissolves. Are you understanding what I'm saying? See, when you do that, when you, through reason, through reason, because in Buddhism very much is using your mind, your reason, the intelligence, and also the warm heart, the empathy. His Holiness always says a compassionate person is somebody, he always compares the compassionate person as somebody who is a very good person, very good person, and someone who is very wise. When you put that combination together, it's, it's really dynamic, isn't it? So it's very using reason. I mean, that's the basis upon which His Holiness's philosophy of peace, compassion comes from, through reason, through logic. So therefore, that when you realize everything is interdependent, hmm? when you realize when you harm others, it harms you, when you help others, it helps you, then you realize that, you see, we are all interconnected. Our happiness is connected with happiness of others. So therefore, in a sense, that inspires altruism. Now, the main point I was coming to was the last line by Buddha said, which is, Rangu Sem Nyon He said, 
Commit not a single unwholesome action. Cultivate the wealth, the virtue. The last thing, the most important, he said, to tame this mind of ours, to transform this mind of ours, to transform, to understand this mind of ours. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. The transforming. In fact, the whole point of teaching Buddha is transforming the mind. Because at the moment you see, for example, in the teaching on the pardos, pardos are, uh, you know, in the Tibetan teachings, pardo is normally, you see, after you die, before you take on a new birth, that intermediary, that transition is called a pardo. Is that clear? But actually, pardo is in a life also. In fact, there are four, life and living, dying and death, after death, rebirth. There are four transitions. They are traditionally known as natural part of this life, painful part of dying, particularly if you're not prepared, and the luminous part of dharmata and karmic part of becoming. In fact, the most important teaching is really the teaching is actually part of this life. In fact, the best time to prepare for death is here in this life. In fact, if you were to say, what is the best way to prepare for death? Or what counts most at the moment of death is two things. How you've lived your life. Not, not meaning drinking champagne and caviar. No, no, yeah. But how you lived your life. You understand? And the state of your mind. In fact, the research has shown in the West that people die as they've lived. So if you want to have a peaceful death, you better live a peaceful life. Nothing comes by chance. So the best time to prepare for death is here now. In fact, this great master called Padmasambhava, who brought the teaching of Buddha to Tibet, and who is the author, you can say, of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and in fact, he said, what we have to really, to put it really simply, is that the, what we have to really work with in this life is work with the mind, and work with the projections. Why? Because you see, mind has two aspects. There's an appearance aspect of mind, there's essence and nature of mind. You understand? At the moment, we are lost in the appearance of mind. As one great master, he put it, that samsara is mind turned outwardly lost in its projection. Whereas nirvana is mind turned inwardly recognizing nature. That doesn't mean nirvana is you turn mind inwardly and look into this. No, that's, you know, that's introvert. You see, that introverted is introverted. Uh, that's kind of a, how do you say? It's not just going into your mind. That, no, that, what it really means is that at the moment, the problem with us is we have you see, we're too much, actually, we're scattered everywhere and nobody's at home. We're very thin. So we need to bring our mind home. In fact, there's too much projection, too much projection. Too much. In fact, the teaching says, Padmasambha, to work with the mind in its projection and realize the essence of the mind, the three kayas. That means essence, the nature and compassion. So basically what it really means is we need to bring the mind home. We need to bring the mind home, as we said here earlier, just as water. If you don't stir it, it becomes clear. In the same manner, mind unaltered. If you just leave your mind 
in its own nature. You understand? If you leave your mind in its own nature, without manipulation, without fabrication, if you just allow your mind to be. Because trouble with ourselves, we've lost the sense of being. We've lost the connection with ourselves. We've just been, you know, projecting lost in the appearance of mind. We have no longer understand the essence or the real nature of mind. I mean, as his owners were saying, sometimes it's the intelligence, like why we suffer is because intelligence, because we thinking. We have all kinds of, how do you say, hope and fear. You understand? I mean, you know how your mind is, or you compare yourself, I'm not this, I'm a failure, I'm a this, I'm like that, I'm, you know. You just go on, go on nagging and nagging and nagging and nagging. No peace. That's why no brain, no pain. I think sometimes, you see, we have to stop the projection. It's like when you're projecting a movie, if you switch off the projector, the, all the projection dissolves the projector. In fact, if you stop projecting, if you just allow the mind to stay or settle here now, here now, here now, if you just stop projecting and allow the mind to settle quietly, It says, same machina de, same mind, if unaltered, will find its well-being, will find the peace, will find the bliss. That's why mind left unaltered will find its true nature. In fact, one of my masters called Eugene Kenabuchi, he has this beautiful poem in which he says, Rest in this natural great peace, this exhausted mind beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thoughts like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. Rest in natural great peace. Rest in natural great peace. To found really the peace. That's why in the Buddhist meditation, first it's called shamatha. In Tibetan, called shine, which means karma bind. It's sometimes translated as tranquility meditation, which is karma binding, peacefully remaining, which is allowing the mind to settle quietly, like a glass of muddy water. If you keep it still, the dirt will settle. Just first, just calm, settle the mind, gather the mind. So the, all the fragmented aspects of yourself come home. We become whole. When that happens, even the negativity dissolves. Pain, aggression, speed. Because often in the West, two things that dominate, speed and aggression. Speed. That's, that speed is the root cause of stress. They're always the speediness. So that if we can like, slow down, in a particular way. Slow down doesn't mean that you have to do everything in a slow motion. But rather, when you really slow down, there's a Tibetan saying, if you do things fast, fast, you reach slowly, slowly. If you do slowly, slowly, reach fast, fast. In fact, Shakespeare also said, make haste slowly. If you do, if you really slow down, if that speed is, if you overcome the speed, then even the aggression is is really the inner disarmament, the meditation. 
is the beginning of charity beginning at home and beginning of the emergence of a good heart, connecting with the fundamental goodness, the beginning of the emergence of love and compassion, prelude to compassion, very much. Is that clear? Very much settling the mind, calm. When you settle the mind, you see, in the state of karma abiding, the negativity, pain, suffering, you see, and also something amazing that you see, then you become also the forgiveness. I mean, there are many, many words we can say, but just, I think you, you feel it a little bit, what I'm saying, isn't it? Then peace. Then inner peace develops. Then out of that, love, compassion begins to suit. And then, when that happens, then you can train in the compassion. Like first, like shamatha, meditation can help you to really gather your mind. And then, you see, the insight comes. When your mind is calm, then it becomes clear. You see, when mind is settled, then the true intelligence comes, not confusion. You see, not ignorance intelligence, because ignorance has an intelligent side. Because ignorance employs the intelligence as his lawyer. <laughs> but whereas that you see that the intelligence becomes more wisdom, the insight. Then you begin to really have insight about what we should do, how we will work. You realize about life, about death, about really the meaning of life, what we need to do, how should we be kind. And then you begin to realize through meditation, which creates, in a sense, the environment for introspection. Because introspection doesn't come so easily. You cannot just analyze so easily. You have to have the calm mind too. Is that clear? Then the clear insight comes. And then training of mind and compassion. Transforming the mind. As you certainly said, it's very important because if you don't train your mind in compassion, Sometimes, you see, you might be just good in meditation, but sometimes your basic character doesn't change. So you have to really work with meditation, but also with compassion, with your basic being, working together. Is that clear? But then, you see, we are connecting with this, remember, with the saying by the Milarepa. In horror of death, I took to the mountains, and again and again, I meditated on the uncertainty of our of death, but then capturing the fortress of the deathless unending nature mind, now all fear of death is done over with. How do you realize that? When you really settle the mind, come to really realize, I mean, which of course, when I talk about it, it seems easy, but it requires many years of training. It's not so easy, but when you do so, there is definitely result which is when you really train your mind through meditation this way, gradually, gradually, you see, as the mind uh, settles in the deep state of inner peace, then the, not only the negativity dissolves, but the ego and the grasping tendencies dissolve, and the duality dissolves, you see. As that happens, that the, the mind itself is now realizing the wisdom, the insight, what is called the dhamet obhira, that the, the wisdom that realizes egolessness dawns also. When that dawns, then you begin to reach the state of transcendence, where you go beyond 
death. It's like you go beyond the cloud and you see, it's like you really realize. It's a bit like if you say through meditation, when you, when you clear away the cloud-like thoughts and emotions, then you begin to discover the sky-like nature of your mind. When you discover the sky-like nature of your mind, then you discover in that sky-like nature of mind, your true nature or Buddha nature or bodhicitta shines like a sun. And sun has two wonderful qualities, tremendous light, isn't it? Brilliance and tremendous warmth. Its tremendous brilliance is compared to wisdom because we have, it's when mind is purified, is wisdom. When intelligence purified, is wisdom. When your heart and when your emotions are purified, it's compassion. It's love and compassion. Is that clear? So therefore, when, if you say, what is the mind of Buddha? It's wisdom and compassion. When your ordinary mind is transformed into wisdom and compassion. And so, when you realize this wisdom and compassion, then you begin to transcend. Then you begin to see the greater perspective of the view. And then you see, in a sense, like very much when you reach to that level, then you actually have no fear of death. As Miller said, in horror of that, I took to the mountains and meditated on the uncertainty of our of death. But then capturing the fortress of the deathless unending natural mind, now all fear of death is done over. Because through this training, through transforming the small mind, you begin to realize, reach to the state of transcendence. Very much. Is that clear? And to say even more briefly, what is the essence of meditation? What is the essence and the foundation of meditation is state of non-distraction. Understand? But essence and, state, and the foundation of meditation is state of non-distraction. Understand? Non-distraction. In Tibetan called Mayingpala Magompa. You see, Mayingpa is undistracted. Magompa, while not meditating on anything. That the real essence of meditation is not really meditating on something but remain in the state of non-distraction. But when we are not able to do that straight away, because our mind is too used to focusing, too used to grasping, too used to latching onto things, so therefore we need something, a skillful way, a method to help that slowly, how do you say, help you to something to focus on, concentrate, that helps you slowly unwind the mind, free the, the mind. Because you see, the quality of mind Sometimes when you talk about what is the definition of mind, mind is known, is defined as conscious, cognizant, and aware. Or to put it simply in the teaching says, the quality of mind is to know. Know. You understand? But the pure knowing, you see, with the pure knowing when you reach to the purest level is called clay light. Clay light has nothing to do with this one. Because when you talk about death, a lot of word of clay light comes in. That's why I mentioned it. But that pure knowing, the knowing mind, has been misused by the ego to grasp. Just as, remember, I said mind is like a crystal. Whatever you place, it becomes that. Remember? So at the moment, this mind is misused by the ego to grasp. Just as, for example, when you see a cinema movie, like the screen is like the phenomena, and the, like all the machine is like the five senses, sense consciousness, and then like the film is like the fickleness of the mind, you know, like, 
and then, you know, it gives the sense of reality. Anyway, but when you really ask who is really responsible, if you really go and check and go and look behind the movie projector, you find there's a little bulb that's giving light. You understand? You understand? Bulb that's giving light. Without this light, there's no cinema. You got it? But actually, the light is being misused by or used by the cinema, but light itself is never involved in cinema. Completely unstained. That's why what's amazing is there's a really aspect of a true nature which is always not stained. Never. Even though it's been misused, it's always pure. I don't know whether you understand this or not. That's why the whole point of meditation is to free the mind from its grasping and return to pure knowing. Now, that is to free the mind from grasping. The meditation is to free the mind from grasping. And so doing, if you can leave your mind in a state of non-distraction, then you've accomplished the, the first step of meditation. However, when we have not accomplish that. Then we need some aid, some support, some method, like lightly, mindfully watching the breath. You understand? But as always the great masters of meditation, they always say, it's very important that you must not, when you're using like a breath as an object of practice, they always say, it's very important we must not focus, concentrate on 100%. Because then you begin to fixate. You begin to even develop more grasping. <laughs> Another grasping. So therefore it is said that you have to divide into three aspects in meditation. That the 25% mindfulness. 25% awareness. 50% relax. Or put it another way, 50% remaining, abiding. 25% mindfulness. 25% awareness, roughly speaking. In fact, this great Zen master, Suzuki Roshi, said, he used to say, way to control cow or sheep is to give a big grazing field. In the same manner, if you mind, give mind space, that's a way to tame the mind in the deep way. So giving space is very important. Space. Or as Australians say, spice. <laughs> Which sounds much better. Spies. Much more fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> space. So you see, it really, 50% abiding spaciously, still. Body still, speech silent, mind at ease. Quiet. And 25% mindfulness. But then you realize that after about three or four minutes, you're but everywhere but on the breath. <laughs> You've been playing in the World Cup <laughs> or starring in your own movie or becoming in night and all kinds of daydreams start happening. So therefore you need another 25% that oversees that you're being mindful of the breath. In Tibetan called Shijin, which is a continual awareness that oversees, in fact, that you're remaining in the state of abiding, you're being mindful, 
and also awareness of all the objects appearing to the senses, that not really being distracted by it. That the, really, that the awareness is very much, how do you say, it's really like the sentinel, the guard, the vigilance. It's very important. In fact, actually, when you really develop meditation, after a while, mindfulness awareness becomes one. In mindfulness, there's awareness. There's, in the awareness, there's mindfulness. Also, there's a tradition where you can teach both of them separately or together. Separately is taught in order to show the function of both, of each, rather. But then when you come to realize more, mindfulness awareness becomes one. In that there is a continual awareness, but at the same time also mindfulness and abiding. These three things are very important. These three things are the very basic principle of shamatha. And that you should have even while you're, you see, using a shamatha, what is called with object, like watching the breath or whatever object, or focusing on image of Buddha, whatever, you should have these three principles. Even while, when you reach the state of like, how do you say, when you no longer need, you see, because first you need an anchor or some kind of object to focus on in order to, uh, you see, settle the mind. But after a while, what happens is, when you start training that way, after a while, you see, first you have the breath, the breathing, and breathing, but gradually, all these things dissolve, all these shade into one. It's like as if you become the breath. And as in, after a while, you're able to be in the state of nowness. You understand? Nowness. In the state of nowness. And when you remain in the state of nowness, in the state of non-distraction, still there should be these three principles of abiding, the mindful, but very subtly. So when you develop slowly that way, that mindfulness, the strength of mind as you gather, and the mind settles, you see, and really deep, and it also builds a stability of mind, really deep, builds character, builds a stability. You become more strong, stable. Then things affect you less, as his was saying. Then you can use your mind in a more, you become, mind becomes more pliable. You can direct your mind in a more virtuous way. So it really, therefore, prepares you. Is that clear? But then as you go through slowly this, then from out of that training, what it does is slowly it frees the mind from its grasping and return to the pure knowing in the nature, in the, into what really its true nature. Slowly, slowly, it's like the mind transcends. It, the grasping is loosened. And you, you transcend in the state of Ajusko, in the state of what is called wisdom that realizes egolessness. When you reach to that level, since there is no clinging to self there any longer, there is no fear of death also, because who fears death is I. Do you understand? In fact, there is a very famous, what is called Prajna Paramita. The Japanese call it Hanya Haramita, Heart Sutra. In the, in the Tibetan tradition, before that, when you do the Prajna Paramita, the Wisdom Sutra, before there's a very prayer which says, Masam Jemi Khera Parochi Majim Munga Namkeng Oon Sosurari Hichoy Batusum You see, beyond words, beyond thoughts, beyond description, Prajna Paramita, that wisdom gone beyond. Unborn, unceasing, sky-like nature. Yet it can be realized by the wisdom of our own Rikpa, homage to the mother of all the Buddhas of past, present, future. Because when you realize that, you see, then you come to realize the fearlessness, as Miller Ripa said, 
in horror of death, I took to the mountains and again and again meditated on the uncertainty of our of death. Then capturing the fortress of the deathless unending nature mind, all fear of death is done and over with can be realized through realizing that state of transcendence. Is that clear? Now, having said that, uh, a little bit, if I say the benefits of meditation briefly, you see, the effects and the benefits of meditation is the mind settles. As the mind settles through the practice of calm abiding, something extraordinary takes place. Just as the picture in the camera will sharpen as you focus it, so the one-pointedness of the shamatha, this calm abiding, allows an increasing clarity of mind to rise. Our restless thinking mind settles and subsides into a state of deep inner peace and finds stability. A scattered and fragmented aspect of ourselves come home, we become whole. The contradictory voices that dictates feelings that fight for control over lives settle and become friends. That means the inner war is, is settles. There is like peace. We become friends with ourselves. There's self-forgiveness. The conflicts, suffering, and the pain of fighting with ourselves dissolves and are transformed. And for the first time, a deep fundamental forgiveness for ourselves becomes possible. We become well in our own skin and have more self-confidence, self-esteem, self-worth, so we can accomplish everything we want to do more. Because sometimes also, you see, it's the, what we fear is the mind, ladies and gentlemen. When you go to the work, how are you going to function? How are you going to cope? But it's your mind you fear. If you conquer your mind, then you become fearless. You won't become reckless. You become fearless in a very humble and confident way. Is that clear? We have more stability and certainty and becomes unchanging like the sky. As the clouds appear and dissolve within it, like a rock that suffers no damage, but weathers changes as the waves lash at the shore, as I said earlier. And we are not only in touch with ourselves, but completely in touch with others. So something amazing is that, you see, the barrier between ourselves and ourselves dissolves. We become comfortable in ourselves. Always that slightly uncomfortableness. It eases. Not only like barrier between you and dissolve, also you begin barrier between you and others dissolve also. You begin to really not afraid of others. You begin to see others as like you. You see? Is that clear? Very much. We're not only in touch with ourselves, but completely in touch with others also. This is the seed of compassion. Negativity disarmed, speed and aggressions are pacified, frustration, tension, turbulent emotions are diffused. The unkindness and violence in us. Because sometimes you see, as the French, there's a, it's a nice word in French called méchant. When you really, that's unkindness. Like a, you know, like some kind of a, some like a devil in us. That's removed. Meditation removed that disarms that. So you become like if you're serving others. See sometimes even when you do charitable work, your motivation may not be so pure. You understand? Sometimes when people, somebody, you know, a little bit complicated person, when the person comes to you, can I help you? Your first reaction is, no, thank you. <laughs> so when you do this, that thing is removed. That, that unkindness, something that other people have difficulty with. I remember one great master used to say, if this is a problem, then remove it. 
is that if there's a problem in you that always has conflict with problem with others, then remove that. <laughs> and when you do that, slowly that's removed. You become easier to be with, and in fact, inwardly, all your negative emotions dissolve. You have less negative emotions. And then also, your health is better also. It really, it has really deep, just as the research, as Yuzolin's Dalama was a little bit saying, that research, not a lot of research has been happening on the connection between mind and body. The research has shown that negative emotions are as destructive to health as smoking or, you say, cholesterol is for heart disease. So therefore, the opposite of the positive emotion is extremely good for health. So that when the mind becomes the state of that positive, then it really, how do you say, it fundamentally, how do you say, brings uh, well-being, wholeness in your health also. Then also on the outer level, you get much a lot better with your friends also. Even the enemies respect you. And then slowly the unkindness, violence, harm in us removed, revealing good heart, and is the highest form in the disarmament. More and more we purify and come to touch with true nature, then appreciation, love, compassion, devotion, faith will naturally spring from this, and destructive emotion will quite naturally dissolve. When the cloud-like thoughts and emotions fade away, the scarlet nature of mind of a true being is revealed, and shining from it, a Buddha nature like the sun. Just as both light and warmth blaze from sun, Wisdom and loving compassion radiates out from the mind's innermost nature. Grasping at a false self or ego has dissolved because you see, at that point, that you see even the grasping of self begin to loosen and dissolve, ego and grasping, and it slowly dissolves. Grasping at a false self or ego, because you see, when I'm saying false self, is because. The trouble with us is we do not really understand, or rather we have a really big misunderstanding of who we are. We're actually kind of holding on to the wrong self. Am I clear? Because when you talk about Buddhism, you talk about egolessness. It doesn't, sometimes people worry about when Buddhism talks about egolessness. Oh, if everything is egoless, what's going to happen to me? Because sometimes they fear being thrown from like a spacecraft into the void. That's not what it is, actually. In fact, when you really realize the, the, the false self, which is like the usurper, the ego is like that. It's always trying to be your friend, saying, I'm for you, but actually eating you up. In fact, all the training of the mind and compassion is to really realize the kind of deception of ego and the grasping what really is the root cause of suffering. So therefore you really realize, I don't want you to anywhere, I want to divorce from you, my ego. You understand, really? It's not that you see, when you realize that, that you lose yourself, but in fact you find yourself. Just as, uh, it's like losing the clouds, but gaining the sky. In fact, when you really realize, when people who, are, who have realized more, who are less ego, egoistic and who are more compassionate uh, have much more sense of well-being. They are much more there, isn't it? Anyway, so 
just simply the grasping at the false self or ego has dissolved and we simply rest in as much as we can in the nature of mind, this most natural state, which is without any reference or concept of hope or fear, yet with a quiet but soaring confidence, the deepest form of well-being imaginable. The confidence and certainty, the contentment, the serenity and the profound humor that rises from directly realizing through meditation the view of the nature of mind is the greatest treasure of life, is the ultimate happiness. In fact, one of my masters called Tingu Kemsrumbachi, who's also his only Dalai Lama's own teacher, he said, once you have the view, this, this realization, although the delusory perception of samsara may rise in your mind, you'll be like the sky. When the rainbow, you see, when this, uh, for the sky, for example, when the rainbow appears in front of the sky, it's not particularly flatter. You understand? When the clouds appear from it, it's not particularly disappointed. There's a deep sense of contentment. You chuckle from insight as you see the facade of samsara nirvana. The view will keep you constantly amused with a little inner smile bubbling away all the time. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast of the Tibetan blog of Living and Dying. Part three of this teaching on living and dying today can be found on our blog. For more teachings, articles and discussions about the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, visit the Tibetan Blog of Living and Dying at www.living-and-dying.org.